Well, good morning. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I'm here for a tech rehearsal when the band's playing to an empty room. It sure is great to have people sitting here. You guys are awesome, engaging with our Savior in a time of worship. I, I love that. So maybe it goes without saying, but I'm particularly reflective these days as I prepare to step away uh, from a full-time role here at our church. And uh, I love that process, but it forces me to think a little bit about how God works and how he changes people. So with the vantage point of all these years, I can look back and ask God questions like, wow, God, what, how does this really work? Now, why is it that if you say, Jesus, that if I be lifted up, meaning the crucifixion, if I be lifted up, I'll draw everyone to me. How come some people reject you, Jesus? How come some people stiff arm you and say, you know, I, I'm not really interested in the Jesus thing? Or those that find Jesus, that believe in him, how come some of those people start well only to drop out, only to disconnect from Jesus and to begin to pursue whatever life they choose to pursue? And, and then how come some people place their faith in Christ and they become devoted disciples? Like they really love Jesus and it's more than words. They order their lives, their minds, their hearts around Jesus. I find those kinds of questions particularly fascinating as I think about this. And I'm suggesting today that this all has something to do with finding the source of our confidence. What are we really confident in? So in our culture, confidence is a virtue, isn't it? Have you noticed? Look around. So to appear strong and self-assured... Uh, is, is something to aspire to. Like what parent wouldn't want their child to be strong and confident and self-assured? So, you know, we, we try to position kids in that direction. You know, this is how you should be. And so we value that as a society, really place a high priority on it. But it seems wise to be honest about the source and object of our confidence, doesn't it? So is our confidence well-founded? Or is our confidence misplaced? Is our confidence reliable or not? So in our passage today, the Apostle Paul will invite us to take an honest look at our confidence. Now this is part six uh, in a nine-part series we've called Joy Together. And what we're doing is we're dismantling verse by verse the book of Philippians, an incredible small epistle written by Paul uh, toward the end of the New Testament, and just a beautiful, wonderful book. My hope is that you've been able to follow along uh, from our times here, and that maybe this has been the landing spot for your personal readings as you spend time uh, with God. So this series is part of our fall celebration. Maybe you've pieced all that together. We're celebrating 35 years of influence. We've been talking about it a lot. And for those of you that have been here over the last few weeks or months or so, you've heard us talk about it. For those of you that are kind of showing up now, you're going, 35 years, wow, that's a long time. Yes, it is. I mean, just look at me. I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, we're grateful to God for his faithfulness over lots of years, because we can look back and we can say, well, because God has been faithful uh, all these years, we can trust him for the future because he's, he has a proven track record. And so it's that inspiration for seeing God's faithfulness that causes us to say, okay, let's keep going, 
right? Let's move into the future together, and that's very exciting. So, so today we're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. My hope is that you've brought a Bible with you, or at least have a phone with you. Uh, if you need a Bible, or that's a new experience for you, we've got them at our welcome desk out there, and we'd be happy to give you one. So you can excuse yourself now if you'd like to do that. Um, let's start. Verse 1, Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Okay, so Paul begins this section now that we're going we're gonna to look at. Um, it, the midway point of the letter, actually. Right at the midway point of the letter. And he starts this section in the midway point of the letter by saying, finally. So it sounds like he's landing the plane. And uh, maybe you're reading that for the first time and you go, okay, this thing's about to be over. Wrong. If you know anything about how the Apostle Paul writes, number one, he's very fond of commas and long sentences, and he likes to tell you that he's ending when he's really not. So he says, finally, okay, but he's, he's going to go on. I mean, again, the halfway point, the midway point uh, of the letter. So once again, we find the theme of the letter mentioned, joy or rejoicing, 16 times in this tiny little epistle. That's why we've called our series Joy Together. He says, it's not tedious for me. Another way to say it, we might say it like this. Hey, no trouble at all. It's no trouble for me whatsoever. Instead, it's safe for you or it is a safeguard for you. He's concerned about their safety. A couple of weeks ago, Trish and I, we're driving home from a, a dinner date that we had with another couple. And we're going down this large hill and up this big hill, uh, probably half a mile from our home. It's at night, it's dark. And so there's this guardrail around the side here. We're going up the hill. I see lights from another car coming. And we round this turn. And I kid you not, this guy is in our lane. And he is going fast. I mean, like really fast, too fast, way too fast. And so, you know, in this moment, you're go all I see is headlights coming at me sideways. And so we kind of brace ourselves. We don't have time to say the Lord's Prayer or anything like that. But I'm figuring this, this is really bad. And so in that instant, you know, I swear there's a guardrail and then there's this little patch of grass. And I was able to get the two tires in the front and the back on the right side off on this grass. And, I, and I'm, I'm bracing myself for impact. This guy missed us by, I don't know, six inches maybe. And I'm thinking, how many occasions like that are there throughout our days? Can I just remind us, the world's a dangerous place. It is. And the world is equally dangerous when it comes to spiritual issues. That's why Paul is saying, no trouble, no big deal for me, and it's safe for you. It's a safeguard for you. He would be saying, why would he say that? Because they're real dangers. So one of the biggest dangers to living joyfully in Jesus comes in the form of spiritual deceivers. And now Paul will turn his attention and encourage us to be honest about spiritual deceivers. Let's pick up with the very next verse in verse 2. Okay, He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no uh, confidence in the flesh. Now notice this. Three times 
Paul says, beware. It may not even be reflected in the version that you have, but it's in the original. Beware, beware, beware. And he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, he says here. These are all the same people. There's not three different people. They're all the same people. And they're known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a faction of Jewish believers. They believed in Jesus, but who insisted on adding the Mosaic law the Old Testament covenantal law to the practices of being a Christian. And so what do they do? They swoop in and say, no, 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 you're either not really a Christian or you're certainly not following Jesus unless you add all of these requirements of the Mosaic law to your practice of following Jesus. So the law was this integral part, but they especially singled out this rite of circumcision. And yes, I drew the circumcision passage in the series here, okay? <clears throat> the command was first given to Abraham and later to Moses. Now, if this were a men's retreat, I'd be having a lot more fun than I'm going to have here this morning. But, but when God gave uh, the, the right of circumcision to Abraham and then later to Moses, I just imagine those guys saying, what, now, you want us to do What? He wants to do what? And this theme actually is throughout uh, the New Testament, starting in the Old Testament. So I'll resist the one-liners regarding circumcision here this morning in deference to the crowd. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Let's cut right to the point. Okay. So the Judaizers are the Judaizers are some, some of you be going, what did he mean by that? On your way home, you'll be going. So the Judaizers are sometimes referred to as the circumcision. That, that's the label given to them because of their obsession with this particular part of the Mosaic law. In Galatians especially, the, the Apostle Paul calls them, he calls them out, he calls them the, the circumcision. But it's believers who are the true circumcision. Notice again, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. There is a circumcision of the heart, isn't there? The cutting away of that which uh, is not needed. So the word for circumcision in verse 3 that you see right here, we'll do a quick little word study, okay, is peritomi, peritomi, and it means to cut around. That's what it means. But Paul uses a different word for circumcision in verse 2, and, and it's not really clear because it's the word mutilation in this translation, okay? But it's another word for circumcision, but it's not the normal word for circumcision, which is peritomy. This is katatomy, which means to cut down or cut off. Now, without getting super graphic here, Paul is making an intentional wordplay. And he's a master at this. Okay, so he's saying, okay, hey, you, you got the, these evil dogs. By the way, what an insult to these Jewish people calling them dogs. You know, Paul just flat out calls them dogs okay beware of the evil workers beware of the mutilation in other words these are the catatomy but it's the peritomy we're the real circumcision he goes on to describe it so the argument could be made that Paul is being too harsh since uh, the Judaizers were most likely sincere 
And they probably were. They probably were sincerely thinking, all right, we've got to go grab all this Old Testament stuff and we've got to lay it over as a template onto our New Testament experience with Jesus. And so there, there may not have been any ill intent in that, but they were just very uh, confused. And so, but, but, you know, maybe, Paul, you could just be more accepting. You could be more tolerant. You could be more gentle or whatever. But not when it comes to this subject matter we're talking about today. Unfortunately, have you noticed, we, we live in a day where sincerity has become a cheap substitute for truth. Like even some Christians reason, it doesn't really matter what someone believes as long as they're sincere. Friends, that's nonsense. Because sincere people in this case who add extra requirements to the gospel are also sincerely wrong. And Paul will waste no amount of energy to defend the simplicity of the gospel and to encourage others to do so. Jesus' harshest words were to the religious elites. Have you noticed this? Those who perverted the truth. That's where Jesus really... As I say, he turned his verbal flamethrower on these guys. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them a group of snakes. Now, that's not how you win friends and influence people. I mean, you know, that's not. Instead, look at his gentleness with other sinful people. I'm not trying to diminish that, but a woman caught in adultery. What does Jesus do? He moves in, in a different way or a prostitute or a tax collector or a thief. But it's these religious elites that really rankled Jesus. So in addition to being honest about spiritual deceivers, and they are real, by the way, this didn't stop in Jesus' day. They're all over the place. And we have to know God's word and the truth in order to discern what in the world is going out there. So in addition to being honest about these spiritual deceivers, you should also be honest about your achievements. That's where he's going next. Here's what he says if you're following along as we pick up in verse 4. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He's going to list all of his accomplishments now. You ready? If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Here comes the list. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of uh, Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now that's quite a list. Paul was the complete package of Jewish respectability and admiration. Here's his list. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day, followed the procedure there, right? The stock of Israel, God's chosen people, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, a very special tribe, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee, like top rank of a lawkeeper, right? Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. That was admirable to these people who sought to snuff out Christianity. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, he said. I kept the law. So in light of the Judaizers' confidence in external rituals and achievements, it's like Paul says, okay, guys, you want to play this game? Here's my resume. Look at all of this stuff here. I have reasons to be confident. 
But unlike the hyper-spiritual legalist that he's dealing with here, Paul had discovered another better source of confidence, Jesus Christ himself. That was Paul's source of confidence. So one day Jesus gave a teaching on wealth and materialism and an outward show. And, and he said things in this teaching like, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous money or possessions, who will entrust to your care the true riches? And in that same teaching, Jesus would go on to say, you know what? Nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve God and your stuff. You can't serve God and mammon in the context, or money, or, or possessions. It's just not going to work. And present in the crowd that day when Jesus gave that teaching were the Pharisees. They heard it. And Luke reminds us that the Pharisees loved money. I mean, they not only liked the big display and show of, oh, look how spiritual these people must be, but they actually loved money. And so Jesus, at the end of this teaching, on possessions and wealth. He says to them, this is Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, them meaning he's directed his comments now to the Pharisees. You are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. Man, you could just, you could just feel those guys seething, can't you? See, we have, to, we have to be careful where our confidence lies because our confidence can be based on lies. See, it's one thing to be confident in the right things. It's another thing to walk around going, oh, they're so confident. Confident in what? So like most kids, I went through various stages growing up, various obsessions as a kid. So, so believe it or not, I, I grew up as a kid in the 60s. And in the 60s, I had my wannabe hippie days. OK, I know it's just so hard to believe. Yes, there's a there's a bohemian trapped inside of this bourgeois external. OK, so the extent of my hippie days was basically listening to music from Woodstock, uh, using words like groovy and far out and plastering the walls of my bedroom with black light posters. That was it. That was like when you walked in, it was like, wow, OK, this is cool. And then a shift took place because in high school, my achievements were, were like a cornucopia of success, okay? Trophies lined my bookshelves, and replacing all those blacklight posters on my wall were certificate after certificate after certificate, award after award after award, just everywhere, all, all over my, my bedroom walls. A couple of years ago, we were cleaning out my mom's house because she had to move out of her house, and uh, my job was to spend literally the entire day in her attic. And in her attic, I came across boxes of that stuff, boxes of trophies, like real trophies, not participation trophies. OK, real, real, sorry, I couldn't resist <clears throat> real trophies and certificates and awards and all of that. Just gathering dust and crud and mold and mildew and all that stuff stuck off in an attic. And you know what I did? I honestly I took a a couple of pictures uh, of, of some of those things. I saved one Little League state championship trophy. Everything else went in a dumpster we had outside of her house. All that I worked so hard for, all that was so important to me, all of that that decorated the walls of my bedroom went into a trash bin. 
And I learned, like many of us, sometimes too late, that what seems like success may instead be failure. What actually seems like, wow, I've arrived, might not only be, no, you haven't, but you've gone the other way. See, the productive may actually be destructive or at least empty, especially, get this, when our identity gets tangled up with our achievements. That was never meant to happen. And I think if we're honest, we would all, we all have our trophies and, and all of that in our minds somewhere. See, along your Christian growth journey, you will inevitably be faced with defining success. I think this is one of the marks of Christian growth. Somewhere along your line, it's like over here, you, you know, you start, you become a Christian. Maybe some of us start like, okay, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is on my team. His job is to make me successful. And real successful Christians look a certain way and they don't get sick and they make a lot of money and they drive whatever and everything goes well for them. They have good relationships. I don't know what planet you're on, but a lot of people actually believe that. And, and then sooner or later, when life begins to, to throw us curveballs, well, the best thing we can do is define success. What is success? And so as we begin to look at sort of the dismantling of some of the things that we thought were near and dear in, in my life, those achievements and accomplishments and, and all of that, I was forced to begin to work really hard to define success. What is success to you? So in the text that we're looking at here today, Paul now naturally moves from achievements to what would follow that. He moves to goodness, to personal goodness, his own personal goodness, our own personal goodness. And from these next few verses, you can learn to be honest about your goodness. And yes, it's in quotes. In verse 7, he says this, but these things, what things? All that big list of things. Look at my accomplishment. Look at who I was. Look at why, what I achieved as a, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as a Pharisee. He says, what things were gained to me? These I have counted lost for Christ. You see, in his old days, he looked back on all that stuff just like many of us do. And we go, wow, I must be pretty important. Look, look what I've gained. And Paul said, I look at what I thought was gain and that's loss compared to Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Man, these are some great reminders here. See, notice the tension between gain and loss. Because we so often get these categories upside down, don't we? We get them mixed up. We, they're interchangeable for us and we... We think loss is gain and gain is loss. No. So, so whatever could be considered gain by way of Paul's human achievements, they were lost compared to gaining Christ. You know why? Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. I don't care how great it seems or how many awards, accolades or honors or whatever, what your resume might look like, where you went to school or what, what you've accomplished in sales or what you've done this or president of this or that, right? Whatever human accomplishments that presume to compete with Jesus, Paul considers rubbish. Now, again, if we had time, literally dung. And if you look at the original language, Paul is not using the nice word. He's using the crass word, the S-H word. Okay? 
By the way, the Bible's rated R. If you look at some of the things that are said, you're going to discover, wow, that's in the Bible. But we have to kind of pretty it up, you know, for respectable people like you. All right. So (laughs) to gain Christ is to render your goodness or righteousness completely ineffective. When you gain Christ, the stuff that we may have been holding on to, oh, look at me, or whatever contribution we feel we can make by way of personal goodness goes out the window. It doesn't compare. It's completely ineffective. What does he say? Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Not about your goodness. It's not about my goodness. Justification means to be declared righteous. That's what he's describing here in verse 9. To be declared righteous by faith. And in a a moment of time, we comprehend what Jesus has done for us. His death, resurrection on our behalf, and the fact that he promises us eternal life. And in that moment, that simple split second of faith, we are justified. We stand clean before him. God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ. Declared righteous. That's what Paul was describing. But we have to get it straight on this journey, don't we? Because Jesus intends to disrupt our priorities and disturb our self-confidence. That's what he's after. Now that might sound abrasive, and in some sense it is. But it's all out of love. But there's, there's a friction, talking about abrasion, between our human goodness and Jesus' righteousness. They're incompatible when it comes to moving toward Christ for salvation. So beware of the conspiracy of confidence to trust in your perceived goodness when only the goodness of Christ will save. And finally, our last two verses in our passage today remind us that we can be honest about what really matters. Starting at verse 10 and finishing at 11. Paul says, that I may know him, him being Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul was already a Christian, and yet he wants to know Christ. What's he talking about? How is that possible? I mean, don't, the moment you become a Christian, don't you know Christ? Don't you know Jesus? Well, the answer, of course, is yes and no. Because now as a believer, when you grow and mature, you get to know Jesus. And about the time you think, wow, I got it, you get to know Jesus. And you continue to know Jesus as you grow and as you change. So Paul is describing growth here. And to know in this context is is to know in an experiential way. And he wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. And he wanted to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What he's describing here is closeness to Jesus. He's just saying, I want to be close to Jesus. I want Jesus and me to be like, like mesh together, right? 
But it's verse 11 that's been troublesome for many. You see that? Paul, Paul is hoping to, quote, somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Somehow to obtain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you're like me, I read a verse like that and go, wow, okay, does that mean that Paul was uncertain about his salvation? Was Paul doubting or questioning whether or not he was going to heaven? That couldn't be further from the truth. This is the guy that wrote the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and the book that so clearly spells out that our confidence, the assurance of being raised to life like from the words of Jesus, he believes in me, you know, I'm going to raise him up in the last day as a promise. So Paul had no doubt that he was heaven bound. He was justified by faith alone. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, the, the word Paul uses for resurrection in verse 11, do you see it there? Is different from the word he uses for resurrection in verse 10. The, the, resurrection, the, the resurrection word for, in verse 10 is the common word, anastasis, used throughout the New Testament. But Paul uses a different word in verse 11. He's beginning to describe, here's the word, ex-anastasis. The only place in the New Testament the word's found. Literally translated, it means the out-resurrection. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. I have my own opinions and, uh, about what he's talking about here. Uh, this could very well be uh, a reference to the rapture. Paul as anticipating Jesus coming back and capturing up the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. The out-resurrection literally is what this word means. It's at least hinting at the fact that in this resurrection, we will stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives to him. And Paul hints at this over and over and over again in the book of Philippians. He will stand before Jesus. This is what I believe the writer to the Hebrews is describing as a better resurrection. That's the phrase he uses. In other words, those of us that suffer for Jesus, that live for him, will receive a better resurrection. Every Christian is resurrected, but there is a better resurrection. And Paul is describing here the out-resurrection, the resurrection in which he will be rewarded. Now, this passage perfectly sets up next week's passage that I'm already excited to talk to you about. So we're going to talk more about the prize that's what next week is about in the, the following verses in chapter 3 of Philippians. The prize that we can expect if we faithfully live for Jesus. And we'll have a fun time doing that. So until then, okay, got a whole week. Be confident, not in your human achievements or in your own goodness, but in the righteousness found in Christ, a righteousness offered to you personally. That's what's at stake here. Isn't God good? He really is good. So I'd like to pray for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness. We thank you for your plan for humanity. We thank you for men like Paul, who was on one course and had his life radically realigned. And we thank you that you've used him to, under the influence and inspiration of your Holy Spirit, to pen a letter like Philippians. Thank you, God, that your word is alive. It tells us things that are true. I pray for each one of us here that on our journey, we would say, oh God, help us to have confidence in the stuff that really matters, not have confidence in lies. Help us to be people that say, God, really, you're all that really matters. Thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that can be ours, clothed in his righteousness, 
standing clean before him. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.